Matthew does a great thing for us as he presents his account in the life of Jesus. In chapters 5 and 6 and 7, he gives us that great body of teaching that Christ gave on the mountainside. We know it today as the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that, well, have you ever been to an exhibition of some sort or maybe visited something like a museum and you make your way round methodically and there is display after display after display and you start here and then you naturally move on to the next one and naturally move on to the next one and all the information that is there for you is building and building and building explaining things building up the big picture as you go from one scene to the next and that really is what Matthew does now in chapters 8 and through into chapter 9. He gives us scene after scene after scene. These different accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ, the different encounters that he has with all of these different people. And as he brings us to each of these scenes, he's unfolding more and more and more about the nature and the person and the being of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us to understand who he is and why he came. So this morning in Matthew 9, as we continue, we're going to see that Christ not only has the power to forgive sins, as we saw last week, but that Christ has great compassion and mercy for sinners. And he has the power to transform lives. In this next section, Matthew is going to record that time when Jesus actually called him, Matthew, to be his follower. You can also find it, re find it recorded by Mark in chapter 2 of his gospel record and in Luke chapter 5. Uh, and there we also discover that Matthew had a second name, Levi. That was actually quite common in New Testament days. Sometimes people would have both a Jewish name and a Greek name. So we discover that he's also referred to as Levi, but predominantly he's known as Matthew. And so let's have a look at these verses. We'll take verse 9 through to verse 17 as we read a little earlier. And the first thing we notice of three particular points that I want to emphasize from this section is the power and the grace of Christ's effectual call. The power and grace in Christ's effectual call. We see that the Lord Jesus is one who has genuine love and concern for sinners. And we see his power and grace in the way that he deals with Matthew. And we see that as Jesus calls him, there's something very special about being called by Christ. No Christian should underestimate the power and grace of the Lord Jesus when he calls. Of course, we've considered this theme of God calling us to himself on several occasions recently. We looked at it just last Wednesday when we were reminded that for us today, this calling of God. Well, this comes to the sinner to awaken us to our need of salvation. And this calling comes 
to open up our hearts and our minds to Christ and his gospel. And this calling, which has power in it, this is the inward working of God's Holy Spirit within us. And it comes through the preaching of God's word. So as the word of God is made known, as the truths of the Bible are made known to people, be it through preaching, be it through a conversation, be it through a piece of literature, however that truth is put to them, the Holy Spirit goes to work. And he does something very special within us, within our soul. We are made alive in Christ, Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 2. And we receive the enabling that we're in need of in order that we might believe on Christ. In our sinfulness, in the, the deadness of our sins, we don't have that. That's why so many people who you talk to about Christ, it's just like it's water off a duck's back. It just doesn't seem to touch them. It just doesn't penetrate at all. But we read that by grace we are saved, through faith. Even, even our faith is a gift from God that we might lay hold of Christ. But of course, here in the Gospels, we see those who were actually in a privileged position to be directly and personally called by Christ physically during his earthly ministry. At the same time, of course, that does not mean that your calling is any less than theirs. But they actually had the privilege of seeing and hearing the Lord Jesus Christ. And without doubt, the person of the Holy Spirit is at work just as much. But Christ demonstrates his effectual calling as he calls Matthew to himself. And we see... Well, Matthew doesn't explain what it was he was thinking. Matthew doesn't explain at all what it was that went through his mind, what, what it was that stirred him in his heart. But what is very clear is that as Jesus called him, he simply has to respond and gets up and follows Jesus. Because you see, when this call comes... It has with it power to convert and to change the soul. Matthew wasn't looking for Jesus. He was at work. He was sitting in the tax office doing his job. Was, was any thought for Christ going through Matthew's mind? Well, I don't know. But the suggestion is not much. He's just at work. So how does Matthew become a disciple? Because Jesus came looking for him. Jesus came to him. And Jesus called him. And when Jesus calls, Matthew responds. There is something in the voice of Christ as Matthew is called. And it demonstrates for us here the, the power and the grace of Christ. So who is Matthew? Well, he's the local tax collector in Capernaum. As such, he would have been a well-known figure. He also would have been a much despised figure. It was his job 
to collect all the tariffs that were levied on various goods that travelled north to south, down from Syria, through the land of Palestine and down into Egypt. Or perhaps goods that were arriving across the lake, because Capernaum, of course, is this little town right on the side of the Sea of Galilee. But being a tax collector in Israel was considered to be one of the most disreputable jobs that a person could have. Of course, that's explained to us in the well-known story of Jesus dealing with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, isn't it? Tax collectors were known to be rather unscrupulous, greedy people, just like Zacchaeus was. He'd become a very wealthy man simply because he swindled people out of their money. They would overcharge people without even blinking an eye. And they were collecting money on behalf of Rome. Jews taking from their own people to line the pockets of their oppressors. So many would consider these tax collectors to be treacherous cheats and thieves. And as such, were frequently uh, used as an example of a sinner by the scribes and the Pharisees. They are, depending on how you look at it, they are the best example or the worst example of what it means to be a sinner. Depends on your perspective. This is the man that Jesus calls to be his follower. Of all the people that Jesus could have chosen that day in the town of Capernaum, of all those who considered them to be, considered themselves to be upright citizens, or in the eyes of everyone else, was an upright citizen. But no, of all the people Jesus could turn to, he goes to the tax collector. And Jesus is demonstrating something through this event that's recorded here, something very important. He came to call sinners. He came to call those who are recognizably sinful. And of course, he came to call those who, for themselves, recognize themselves to be a sinner. Of course, that was the great barrier to the Pharisees. That was the spiritual blind spot that they had to consider themselves as a sinner in need of a saviour was the biggest insult you could have put to them. Now, had Matthew already heard about Jesus? Well, given the Sermon on the Mount and given all of these miracles that are taking place, it's hard to imagine that he's never heard of Jesus. Was he actually there amongst the crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe he was. Has Matthew met Jesus previously, or at least heard him? Well, maybe he had. But even if all of those things are true, Matthew's response is still remarkable. But of course, Matthew's response is remarkable because he's being called by the one who is remarkable. Uh, Perhaps... In the years ahead, Matthew's meticulous skills in record-keeping, as he would have had as a tax collector, 
possibly the fact that he was almost certainly fluent in several languages as a tax collector. They would actually prove to be abilities that God could use to great effect in future years for the cause, for the cause of Christ. Such abilities perhaps enabled him uh, to produce such a, a great record, such as we have in our Bibles that we're able to read. But nevertheless, he's still one of the least likely candidates in Capernaum that day that Jesus will call. But Jesus is, Jesus is going to use this to hammer home this message, I've come for sinners. I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's for these kinds of people that I've come. And it seems in some ways that Matthew was actually a man of some degree of modesty and humility. Luke records that as Jesus called Matthew, he simply got up, left everything behind, and followed Christ. Now, Matthew doesn't include that detail about himself. Perhaps he is too modest a man to, to say it or, or to mention it, but Luke tells us he's just left everything in order that he might follow Christ. Luke also tells us that the house in which they're eating, in verse 10, is actually Matthew's house. That's another fact which Matthew doesn't choose to mention. If you happen to have an NIV, uh, that actually does say in Matthew 9 that it was Matthew's house. But that detail is included as an editorial decision by the translators and the publisher. It isn't actually in the original text. So Matthew's response to Christ is immediate. It's decisive. And the first thing that we find Matthew doing is hosting a party. Or was it just a gathering? <laughs> um, friends, come. Colleagues, come. I've met someone you need to meet. He wants everyone he knows to meet the one who now is the master of his own soul. He doesn't bother to tell us it's his house. Matthew doesn't want you to see anything of himself. He just wants you to meet Jesus. That's what's on his heart. So, he says as little about himself as he can because he just wants to tell you about Christ. Isn't that the sign of a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about uh, me. It's about your you need to deal with this Jesus. You need to have this Jesus deal with you, how he's dealt with me. That's what's on Matthew's heart. And so he's called by the Lord Jesus. He immediately invites his friends into his home so that they can meet the one who now is his Savior and his Lord. Because he's been saved, because he has been found by Christ, he wants his friends 
and all of his colleagues to have exactly the same experience that he's had. I think Matthew has understood, you see, that even though he's left everything behind in Christ, he now has far more than he'd abandoned. And he wants everyone else to have the same. The passage shows us the power and the grace of Christ in calling sinners to himself. Christ can take a tax collector and turn him into a disciple and an apostle. Christ can go after one who was looked down upon by his own society, who was considered to be an outcast in many ways, one who was unpatriotic, a a thief, a cheat, a treacherous man. Of all the people that we might point to as an example of what it means to be a sinner, there he is. And he's the very person that Jesus calls to be his follower and to be an apostle. We must never underestimate the power and grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ to call and having called then to change and to make new as he does with Matthew. Matthew almost certainly would have enjoyed for his day a very comfortable living. And by leaving that job as a tax collector, he probably would then have consigned himself to a a relatively modest standard of living and standard of life. But it seems that for Matthew, that really is no big deal. There are all sorts of people seeking contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction and they seek it in all kinds of things. In some ways, Matthew was a man who would have enjoyed those kinds of things for his time. He was a man who would have had access to them. He'd have a man, he would have been a man who had the money to pay for those kinds of things that people seek after. People seek after financial wealth. Matthew would have had that. People seek after reputation. Well, Matthew had a reputation of sorts. People seek all kinds of assets to sustain themselves and to make themselves comfortable and satisfied. But Matthew discovered that the the real peace, real contentment, real joy, real satisfaction actually came through abandoning all of those kinds of things and just taking hold of Christ. And Christ was enough, more than enough, and made up for everything he'd left behind. There is power and grace when Jesus calls, and it's sinners Jesus came to call to himself. Jesus came for sinners. And so we're not surprised to discover that the Pharisees, at verse 11, are scandalized by the fact that Jesus is spending time with these tax collectors 
in the house of Matthew and others of sinful repute. And they bring a charge against Jesus. They don't go to Jesus directly. They put it to his disciples. Maybe their aim is to try and cause the disciples of Jesus to question Christ's judgment. You disciples, you, you esteem this man so highly, you follow him as your master, as your rabbi, your teacher. Why would he be violating, and te- violating the teaching of the very first psalm, which says that the man who is blessed does not sit or stand with sinners. Remember that psalm? And yet, here is Jesus, not only sitting with sinners, he's reclining at the table with them, sharing a meal with them. What kind of man is this that you're following? Why on earth would you want to follow someone like him? Well, Jesus overhears their words, and he responds, and he brings a really devastating rebuke to them. It's not the healthy who need the physician, it's those who are sick. Jesus is saying, look, it's those who are ill who need the doctor. And it's precisely sinners who need a saviour. How will sinners be saved if the saviour doesn't go to them? How will they hear the words of grace they need to hear? Who will tell them? How are they going to be drawn away from their wickedness into grace and salvation if the Saviour doesn't go to them? You see, the Pharisees, of course, gave the impression that they have this incredibly high view of sin and holiness. They just couldn't believe that Jesus would associate with sinners. No, sinners are beneath religious people. But Jesus is basically saying, you haven't understood the first thing about sin and God's salvation. You completely misunderstood. If you understood sin and what it does to people, and if you understood sin and its consequences and its eternal damnation, Well, you would be the first people to see your need of me if you really understood. You think you have no need of me. You think you're perfectly well as you are. So be it. But I've come for those who know their sin and who know their need of salvation. In their self-deception, in their supposed self-righteousness, the Pharisees believed themselves not to be sick and therefore not to be in need of Christ. So Jesus goes on to say, well, you've, you've, you've misunderstood the word of God. And he points them to Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees gloated about the way they denied themselves physically in order to fastidiously keep their many rules and regulations. But it was a cold, empty religion of works. 
That's not what God is looking for, says Jesus. He's not looking for people who just give themselves to this this order of uh, doing this and not doing that and patting yourself on the back for the way you've managed to live today. That's not what God is about. God is a God of mercy and a God of compassion and a God of grace and a God who wants to deal with people. That's what he wants to see reflected in his people. Jesus is showing them, I've come to demonstrate God's compassion and mercy and grace in reaching out to sinners, calling out to sinners that they might come to me and be saved and be transformed and be made new, that they might have repentance, turning from their sins and being reconciled to God and being forgiven. That's what I'm about, Jesus is saying. The Messiah has come to bind up the brokenhearted. The Messiah has come to call in all the sheep who've gone astray. The Messiah has come to pay for the sins of wandering people. He's come for the redemption of sinners and to call them to himself for salvation. And the Pharisees just don't get it. And so the Lord responds with this rebuke. And he just lays before them why he's come. I've come for sinners. And even someone like Matthew can have his eyes and his heart opened to his need of Christ. Have you seen your need of him? Or do you just think you're well enough? Thank you very much. Uh, Our good friend J.C. Ryle says this. Sinners we are in the day we first come to Christ. Poor, needy sinners we continue to be as long as we live drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners, we shall find ourselves in the hour of death, and we shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day when we first believed. Poor, needy sinners, saved by grace. There is no sin so deep that it puts us beyond Christ's reach. There is no sin which disqualifies us from his attention. There's no sin which separates us from his ability of power and grace to love us and reach us and call us and transform us. Maybe sometimes there are some, they'll say, well, yeah, but you don't know my sins. You don't know the shameful things that I'm keeping covered up, that no one knows, but I know. Jesus 
came for sinners. But you don't know the things I've had happen to me. You don't know my past. You don't know what it's been like. Jesus came for sinners. You don't know the awful things that have completely overtaken me. Jesus came for sinners. No one is beyond the reach of his love. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. And no one is beyond his power to save. Listen to his voice. I have come for sinners. Do you hear him? Do you hear his call? The Bible simply tells us to come as the sinner that you are to the feet of the Savior. There is welcome. There is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is the power to save. And Christian friends, if we have Christ's heart we'll have the same heart for sinners like Christ did. We'll have the same heart for sinners like Matthew did, doing all that we can to take Christ to them and to bring them to him. He's come for sinners. And then this little section concludes from verse 14 onwards where we see there that outward forms of religion are no substitute to coming to Christ. So we learn these as now the disciples of John the Baptist come along. We learn that we must be careful of asserting man-made patterns of righteousness however helpful they may be. The disciples of John the Baptist come after the Pharisees and they ask Jesus this question. They put the question directly to Jesus. Help us understand something, they say. We're the disciples of John the Baptist. We are regularly fasting. We know that the Pharisees, for example, would, would insist on fasting at least two days every single week. And, of course, they would make a public spectacle of it as well. Uh, they would put ash on their faces uh, to make themselves look a bit kind of sallow and, I've, had a, I've not eaten for days kind of thing. Help us understand this, they say. This John, a man who had great respect for you, uh, a man who apparently you hold in the highest esteem. Um, we believe that the, the disciples of John the Baptist, they also would twi uh, twice a week fast. But we don't see your disciples fasting. Uh, they're not going through the, the kind of uh, religious routine 
that we would expect them to follow. They're not doing the kinds of religious things that surely religious people do. Why is it that we fast? Why is it that Pharisees also follow these strict regulations for fasting? Surely these things are signs of true spirituality. But your disciples, they're not doing any of these things. And so Jesus responds. He gives them a very simple answer. He says, the reason that my disciples don't follow this fasting like John has commanded, like the Pharisees do, is because I'm here with them. That's why they don't fast. I'm here. You see, I am the bridegroom the bridegroom of Israel. And you don't fast at a wedding. At a wedding, you feast. It's a time of joy that while I'm here. It's a time of triumph. It's a time of hope. It's a time of blessing. And so you don't mourn. You rejoice. When the wedding is on, you feast. You celebrate. That's why my disciples don't fast. I'm here with them. They have no need of fasting. I'm here. I'm like the bridegroom. They're like my groomsmen. That's why they have no need of fasting. While the Messiah of Israel is here in your presence, there's no need to fast. Now, of course, John the Baptist was a very rigorous man. He was under a very special uh, appointment by God. He'd taken vows uh, from his youth. He didn't drink. He abstained from certain types of food. He lived out in the wilderness. He lived this very, very uh, austere lifestyle. But he was a unique prophet in that sense. No way was John the Baptist's life given to us as a pattern to follow. He was unique. And Jesus reminds John's disciples that there is no command for these things, the way they are following these fasting rules. There's no command for this in the Bible. The only fast that's commanded in the Old Testament is connected with the Day of Atonement in the book of Leviticus. That's the only fast that's commanded. Now, there is much fasting found in the Old Testament, but that's down to those individual believers at that particular time, in particular circumstances. It's down to their own conscience before the Lord. And as they were crying out to the Lord, they fasted and they prayed because of particular circumstances that they were in. It wasn't commanded that they do it. And so Jesus reminds John's disciples, fasting can be a good thing, yes, but it's not a commanded thing. And I'm not going to be binding my disciples by such a thing. Not now. And for us today, just briefly, one of the important things we learn here is we have no warrant whatsoever to impose things upon anyone if it has no biblical warrant. There might be things that you advise, counsel, suggest. But we can't bind one another's conscience on anything unless it's something that the Word of God binds your conscience over. 
They were wanting to bind the consciences of Christ's disciples on this issue of fasting. No, says Jesus, you can't do that. If the Scripture doesn't require it and command it, then it's not required or commanded. And then he uses these two illustrations about putting a fresh piece of cloth on an old piece of cloth and putting new wine in old wineskins. They would sew up the skins of animals to make a kind of bottle. They'd put the new wine inside it and as the wine fermented and gave off gases, the skin needed to be able to expand and stretch and a new wineskin can do that. An old one goes brittle and it would just split and the wine would be lost. And Jesus is saying, look, the new wine that he's bringing, the new cloth and garment that he's bringing, they cannot be constrained by old man-made regulations and rituals. They don't belong together. I'm doing a new thing. The new thing I'm doing, you can't try and attach to all of these old ways of doing things as you've seen them. This is a new work of grace that I'm ushering in. Things are different now. The Saviour is here. Now, as Jesus says at the, the end of verse 15, uh, we are those now who no longer have his physical presence with us in the world. There will be times when the Christian has such burdens upon their soul that they will fast and pray. But as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, we considered that at that point some months ago, it's, a, it's to be a very personal thing between you and the Lord. And it's not something you draw attention to. It's something you do in the secret place. It's something between you and God. And for the Christian, for a time, there is both mourning and rejoicing. There is mourning over sin. There is mourning over our sins as Christians. We saw that right at the beginning of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. That's where Jesus begins, mourning over your sins. But the Christian in Christ is also filled with joy and full of rejoicing because our sins are paid for and dealt with by Christ. So we kind of have, we have these two things at the moment in our Christian's life, in our Christian lives. We mourn over daily sins, but yet we rejoice in thanksgiving that we have such a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. The day is coming when all sin will finally be done away with forever. There will be a new wedding feast. It's, that's how it's described. When Christ returns, takes us to be with himself. We are described as his church, as his bride for whom he comes. And a new wedding feast takes place. And all sin is done away with. There'll be no need for fasting in heaven. You'll never need to fast in heaven. Why not? Because you'll be in the very presence of your Saviour. Just as the disciples were for that short time. No need for fasting. I'm here with them. 
the day is coming when that will be our, all our experience for all of eternity to forever be with Christ. All mourning for sin will be done away. All fasting over sin will be done away. You will forever be with your Saviour. The bridegroom will return for his bride and take, him, take us to be with himself. But for now, till that day, here we see the love and the power and the grace of Christ on display. If you don't know that love and grace of Christ, if you think you're beyond the reach of that love of Christ, I would invite you again to hear his words as he speaks them, as Matthew records them. Here is the very one who Jesus called that day. Here is the, the eyewitness who heard and saw these events that took place that day. Here is the one who, who saw the eye of Jesus fall on him. I came for sinners. And Matthew came to Christ. And here is Jesus repeating this message as those who are questioning and, and unsure and uncertain. He hears the message again. I have come for sinners. If you know that you're a sinner, the Lord Jesus Christ has come for you and calls you to himself. If you're a believer today, if you've tasted this love and grace of Christ, let it refresh your soul once more. He's called you. He's saved you. He's changed you. And remember, this is a, a love unspeakable from which you can never be separated. Such is his love and grace for sinners.